happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 224 for July the 21st, 2021. My name is Wes Fryer. I am coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am being dissuaded from wearing my glasses because my ring light makes me look like a goof, and I don't know how I'm going to resolve that issue. Just first world problems all over the place tonight. But I'm joined, as always, by the man with a mane, <laughs> who I do not think has cut his hair in many months. His name is Dr. Jason Neifer. He is the EdTech Yoda and tech news guru <laughs> of the North. How are you tonight, Dr. Neifer? Well, other than my long hair, it was, it was February 29th, 2020, when I got my last haircut. So, um... Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm still kind of quarantined off, so I will continue to, to sport, uh, this very, very, very long hair. It's, I had long-ish hair in college. It's nothing compared to what I've got going here. But this podcast, sadly, is not about my hair. Instead, this is the EdTech Situation Room, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located in kind of smoky, uh, Missoula, Montana. A little, I'd call the air chewy out there. Just a little, Little extra something, something, something in the air tonight. But we're also not here to talk about weather. Wes, what is the attack situation room? Well, we are here after our, you know, four week hiatus. We were back last week, but we, we had a little break for the summer. Uh, but we're going to talk about the past week's technology headlines through an educational lens. We've got a litany of links that you can check out at edtechsr.com slash links. And as always, we have a variety of articles, which probably if we, yeah, we, maybe we shouldn't start there, but it, you know, we, we can talk a lot about the tech correction, but we have other articles tonight too, touching on Apple, Google, the culture war, social media, new media, privacy, COVID, and of course our geeks of the week. So Dr. Neifer, actually, I want to ask you, how is the Moodle moot before we jump into the articles? Truly outstanding. Uh, once again, uh, shout out to the good folks uh, uh, at Carol, Ryan and Dan, Ryan Hazen and Dan Case, who uh, put on that conference for, I think, almost 10, 11 years now. Uh, hands down, the best uh, a Moodle event in the United States, certainly the best small conference in the United States, too. But um, just really community oriented. And they decided for safety reasons that they would have it online again this year. I think that was a good call on their part. Um, but I was able to connect with a lot of my good friends in the, in the uh, Moodle community. And then also they attract uh, kind of the region's uh, ed techs folks as well. So that that's always a, a super nice event. And my understanding is that they're going to put all the sessions on YouTube. So uh, you can see um, all the stuff there, especially if you do anything in or around Moodle, then that would be um, a, a good place to find resources. Absolutely. And Dr. Neifer tweeted the playlist, I think, or retweeted Moodle's uh, Moot's uh, tweet of that playlist. So as has been the case for a while, there is a incredible plethora of free professional development available online. And uh, if she joins, she may join us live. She may not. But, you know, Peggy George, our fan number one, is is always one of the foremost sharers of opportunities for awesome professional development. So I was in the 2021 Summer Institute in Digital Literacy again online this year. And that was happening last last week. And I just ended up not uh, 
not double booking myself. Um, I was actually faculty this year. This was my third year to participate. So it was, it was excellent, but I, the zoom fatigue was real and I think we is yeah. palpable and, and we could sense it. It was great. It was fantastic, but man, next summer, hopefully, you know, Delta variant will be, uh, behind us. Uh, it sure be nice to be able to go back to face-to-face conferences. So Jason, where would you like to start with tonight's articles? Well, so many interesting topics, but let's start with maybe, it's not quite breaking news, but it was surprising. I have some additional details about it. Um, Automatic, which is the company that uh, owns and makes WordPress um, and large kind of open source company uh, that sells a lot of services related, runs more than a third of websites on earth, has purchased something we've talked about here in the past, which is the app Pocket Cast, which is a podcast aggregator. In fact, I would guess that a serious number of our regular listeners are Pocket Cast users, as am I and, and Dr. Fryer. Um, but the reason, well, so uh, they bought it from a consortium of public radio and public media companies including NPR, and in the last year, the BBC has even invested in the consortium that runs the app. And the reason why I saw this, or I I thought this to be so curious, was the fact that the good folks uh, at HotPod, which is a subscription email list that sends out podcasting news, I was alerted to the sale because of them. And they also noted that uh, NPR has reported as part of its, you know, it's, it's a nonprofit, but as part of its its uh, reporting, that they've lost $800,000 already. So that was be, being part of the consortium that owns the Pocket Cast company. And I'll admit, I am not an entrepreneur. I, I don't have super great business sense from the standpoint of I don't know what it goes into making and running an app. But I feel like that in the last couple of years, um, that uh, uh, Pocket Cast has evolved a bit in its economic model. For example, um, they started um, um, they started uh, a charging a, a regular fee to get some of the extra features that come with Pocket Cast, and that annoyed some lifetime members. Although, frankly, I was quite happy to pay for it because of how much I find value out of that particular app. But it just goes back to the fact to say that even things that have a cost to them aren't necessarily economically sustainable. And, um, you know, WordPress has managed to make WordPress work in that it's software it gives away. And, in fact, every single time I've used WordPress in any context in my professional professional or personal life, it's been the free version. I've never paid for a WordPress service. They've managed to make it work. So we'll see if the kind of freemium model that Pocket Cast has been attempting to make happen can make that happen. Yeah, I really hope that we're going to continue to see independent, um, non-Spotify, non-Apple, uh, non-Google podcast, you know, podcast platforms. Uh, everything's dynamic in technology. We see lots of change and the, I don't want to say inevitable, but the creep or move in the podcasting world certainly is to large platforms that especially can apply well, surveillance capitalism, uh, you know, gather data, be able to crowdsource recommendations, help with discovery, um, you know, and then give you metrics and things and analytics, you know, on your on your listening. And so the early days of podcasting where, you know, we had our little podcatcher and we would and Pocket Cast fit into that mold. I think it was an Australian group that that started it initially, you know, just as as small time developers. But yes, it's wonderful. Um, I do listen, you know, on my Google Assistant to uh, podcasts from time to time. But 
I just, I, I really don't want every, you know, I don't want everything certainly to go inside a walled garden. Um, but I think it's a little bit like fighting the tide maybe a bit because those yeah. apps that I mentioned seem, you know, they have, they have market share, they have size and they're bringing podcasts to a larger audience, which, you know, in the case of social media, I don't know. I mean, we'll, we might, we, we may talk a little bit about, you know, some different, uh, fringe apps and things like that, that are out there in phones and stuff like that. And so it's, you know, there, there's, there's positives and negatives, all kinds of technology, but podcasting is fantastic. It continues to be one of the ways that on a day, if not a day, almost a, a daily basis, especially in the summertime, I'm learning stuff. So check out pocket casts. I'm glad to see they're going to, you know, live on with automatic and I'm a huge WordPress advocate and user and fan. And so I think that sounds like a really good home for pocket cast. So I'm happy. Yep, Absolutely. Okay. Where'd you next, sir? Oh, let's see. Uh, let's take, uh, actually let's, let's pick up your privacy article, uh, that you did for recode. Uh, I got to read this whole one before the show. Uh, the title is from Macy's to Albertson's facial recognition is already everywhere. And this was from recode on July the 19th. Um, you know, there have been, I think, two states, Virginia and Colorado, that are cited in the article that have passed some privacy uh, protections. Um, there's also a really good EFF article that you put in that kind of touches on this as, w- as well. But this article by Rebecca Heilwell um, from July 19th says that, you know, there's facial recognition happening. In fact, I guess in the Rite Aid, they were rolling that out over like 10 years and then they abruptly said, oh, we're abandoning it. But, you know, in order to increase profits and, um, you know, possibly reduce theft, monitor employees, there's a lot of different reasons that companies give. But the thing is, you can't opt out. And we have virtually no privacy protection laws in the United States today. Um, the GDPR is the General Directive on Privacy Regulation, I think, uh, was what it stands for. And that's in Europe. And so, you know, Congress has proposed legislation, but but we don't have anything federally. So uh, Illinois has a strong biometric law that uh, prohibits, I guess, the anonymous, uh, you know, collection of, well, not anonymous, the just the collection of biometric data without without permission. Right. Um, so uh, this fight to the future, a fight for the future um, is uh, initiative that that's calling out companies that are using the technology. And, you know, like perhaps we'll talk about with that EFF article where it comes to zero days and the way stuff's hidden, you know, this, the whole data um, collection and, and sales, you know, industry, which is, which is the undergird surveillance capitalism. It's a lot of stuff that people aren't really aware of. So I appreciated you putting that article in and, uh, I, th- I think I'm a little, little surprised. My perception is, you know, focus on the government side of it. Oh, you go to London, you're going to be, you know, under, under, under surveillance. So, um, I don't, I don't think there's a really a clear harm that a lot of people are seeing. And right. so this isn't a bandwagon that a lot of people are on. Um, so what's your forecast? Do you see the, the situation changing? much in the future that people are going to, you know, push along with these other tech regulation pushes for something that touches on facial recognition? Or do you think we're, we're just kind of blissfully ignorant as a society and we're going to remain that way? Well, and the fact that you express surprise, I express surprise when looking at this. And I guess in the big picture, I, I, I really shouldn't be because there's been a ton of tracking efforts 
that that are targeting us uh, individually. I think facial recognition is a very um, I, I'm not saying this to be crass in your face version of it, right? That, that it's certainly something that's capturing data, uh, our likeness that I think we tend to, um, uh, uh, think is a little more serious, but I mean, a variety of businesses have been using, uh, low energy Bluetooth tracking for some time now and, um, everything from how you flow to the store, uh, uh low energy Bluetooth, I believe has a unique identifier involved in it. And so it can track you know, maybe not necessarily who you are directly, but perhaps that you as a user may come into a certain store. But the thing that I think, the thing I appreciate about this article and broad recognition of, of this as a as an issue is the bottom line is, is that um, uh, it, it's going on whether, you know, you like it or not. And it's not something that necessarily you're being notified about uh, on your way into stores. Now, I happen to know Albertsons is a popular chain in Montana, so there are Albertsons here. I've not been to one in about 18 months or so, but um, uh, uh, they, for example, uh, always, I, I, I know this just because it's always interesting to me. They oftentimes have signs on their front door that say that there are devices recording, right? Which is not really that unusual, right? That, that having security cameras on in a store is not that unusual, but that also may cover them in regards to notification laws, which I don't know if they exist here in Montana or not for that yeah. process. You know, so it's, it, it, it is kind of a rabbit hole, but it is a serious what if in regards to privacy. So I want to take a stab at, at Peggy's comments in the chat. She says that she doesn't really understand the benefits of facial recognition for retail stores, and it sounds like a solution looking for a problem. Well, I mean, here's the problem. It's it's the collection of aggregated data about each one of us, and in this case, without any opportunity to be able to opt in or opt out, um, there is a tremendously large opaque cloud of data that continues to be gathered about us, which data brokers, that was the term I was looking for earlier, um, are able to sell, you know, to the highest bidder. Uh, they're able to sell to governments. We'll talk about this EFF article that talks about, I think, the Pegasus spyware and the way in which journalists and human rights and democracy advocates have been killed in different places. Um, and so, you know, when it, but there's a, there's a much less harsh and, you know, not life or death kind of scenario that involves, you know, advertising and folks just really wanting to wanting to track us and know us. But in terms of I, I can imagine how this is probably going down in these stores, you know, it, how are they going to identify you and know you for sure? Well, when you check out, when you use your credit card, when you put in your frequent shopper, which usually means your phone number, which is a number now that is probably as important or more important than the social security number, because anytime you talk about databases, you need key fields. And those are the things that connect you to uh, your data. And so your phone number, your uh, credit card information, uh, and now your face. And see, the thing about it is we can get new credit card numbers and we can change cell phone numbers but you really can't get a new face. And so the folks that are concerned about biometric data and their collection, just like any other kind of data collection, is that we have literally no power to stop what is going to happen to that data after it is collected. It can be hacked, it can be sold. And when it comes to biometric data, that kind of data is private and permanent in a way 
then a social security number. I mean, a social security number, we can't really change those, but a phone number and a credit card, those are not permanent in the same kind of way. So I do think this is an important thing to help educate people about. Um, you know, you've got, I mean, we've had had things about number of the beast and being tracked and, and fears about chips and good grief. I don't know if we'll do this article, but like a recent study, it had 1500 people in the study. But it was saying that 20 percent of Americans think that the covid vaccines are implanting microchips for Bill Gates. I mean, like 20 percent of adults are thinking that today. And, you know, so we have a broad awareness about how, you know, the surveillance state and the Orwellian state could be bad and we don't want to have it. But biometrics is not something that, you know, we're, we're, we're able to even know what's going on. And I think that's what is, is surprising. And because of the permanency of it and the fact that that data then, you know, maybe we don't care that someone knows that I'm buying some Aleve or I'm getting, you know, a Coke or a root beer, but you know, put together all the data that people collect about us that is then used, uh, you know, is, is it's part of this bigger picture of surveillance capitalism and these things that people are doing about it. So, yeah, I don't know if I did a, a great job with that, but I think the fact that it's hard to explain yeah. is also part of the issue, yeah. right? Because it's like, well, why don't I don't I don't care. You know, we've had surveillance cameras around. So, you know, why, why should I care? Well, and and to to go back to the original article from Recode as well, that stores are claiming this is for theft reasons, right? And and that that said, that uh, there are so many other ways people could use data associated to 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 an individual, right? So even analyzing things like facial expressions and uh, body movement as it relates to specific aisles in a store. Um, you know, I, what I would additionally say is that I do think that these are debates that are coming to schools near you as well, right? In the same way that a lot of schools have adopted security cameras, I would imagine the facial recognition technology is probably, uh, 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 from a price standpoint, a bit prohibitive to consider in a lot of scenarios within schools. But at some point, this is going to also be a tool available to schools. And, um, you know, ignoring the student piece for a moment, right, which itself is a big can of worms, imagine, you know, working in a school where your movement is tracked around the building and what happens to that data. And, um, you know, even if there is a, a, a security or safety argument to be made, these are serious policy debates we need to have in and around education. And I will say that this is the inexorable trajectory of technology. And we see that impact in school where administrators and leaders are given more and more power to do more with data, limiting the data that people have access to. In the case of surveillance, you know, it's um, as the technology director at our school for four years. I mean, we were and, and, and still are, I think, keeping all of that video data in house. But there are some really powerful platforms that if you're willing to send your video data into the cloud, you know, I remember watching an ad for one of these. I mean, they could say, hey, in the last 30 days, have we had any white Jeeps, you know, come onto our campus? And you can query with, you know, very some 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 high levels of sophistication, you know, querying video in the same way that you would query text. And so, yes, to Jason's point, I mean, thinking about what that looks like. 
I don't think parents are going to put up with, you know, oh, you just, you know, implanted a chip in my kid's arm, <laughs> you know, so we know when they're on the bus. But I mean, we've had some things like that happen where people for, you know, knowing about where kids are and keeping them safe and, and things like that. The biometric scan is not something that requires you to carry a card or to have a chip or a special watch or anything like that. And it is coming. I'm going to just forecast that right now. This is coming to school video surveillance systems. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to make decisions about this as, as organizations and, um, you know, all kinds of entities, just, just, just as businesses are as well. So what I would say overall is that the push for privacy and for some regulation in this market, because it's pretty much a wild west of no regulation in almost the entire country. There's only a few, I think they, again, they said like Colorado and Virginia, maybe the only states that have a privacy law right now. Um, Illinois has a biometric law. So there's, there's some, but by and large, there's a, a wild west and, Biometrics is a pretty important topic. Um, and hey, if you're teaching a technology or media literacy class, uh, touching on current issues, talking about biometric data and privacy would be a pretty good topic to pick up on. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't I throw this article in? Because I already mentioned it. Uh, this is coming to us from The Hill. Uh, and it was a July 19th article. Alarming number of Americans think vaccines contain microchips to control people. Um, and again, it's like 1500 people in this poll. I think it was a YouGov poll and, you know, they were, they were finding that 20%. So the, the number of people who are, are really anti, who are anti-vaxxers. <laughs> we were just up in South Dakota and Wyoming. We live in Mon in uh, Oklahoma. Um, you know, there's a lot of people um, out there and, um, that, that study, um, you know, it portends <laughs> impacts for us in schools with masks and, you know, with Delta variants and things like that, as we're wondering about what we're going to have to do, what we need to do to keep ourselves safe and keep our students safe as we head back into the, uh, the school year. So, um, that, that one I put, I, I put a number of articles under the, the COVID heading. So, we could go down that rabbit hole or we can maintain our distance from the tech correction for a little bit longer, Dr. Neifer, and go somewhere else. And maybe we should do that because sometimes we just fall into that hole for about 30 minutes. <laughs> sure. Um, let's, uh, well, the problem is that the next topic on Samuel Cat was culture wars. Well, uh, you've got, a, you've got a few carryovers under the Apple and Google. I do. Yeah. 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 Let's so. talk about a couple of quick Apple, uh, uh, articles. Uh, great life hacker article from June 30th, the best iPad drawing apps that aren't Adobe Fresco. The reason why this particular article gained my interest is because I didn't realize that, uh, uh, Adobe is discontinuing Photoshop sketch and the Illustrator draw apps, which are both great apps. Um, and part of this is that I wanted to note that, um, you know, I, in my slow movement back to Apple world, I did purchase a used iPad air three earlier this year and then picked up a used Apple pencil. And it is a very, a very stunning and compelling, uh, a hardware match, uh, that in fact, uh, the, uh, the other day I had a, uh, uh, reason to refresh my digital signature that I put on paper documents, uh, uh through, um, a, a drawing app. But the, 
uh, Life Hacker goes through the new app, which again is called Fresco, and then there are some other apps in co- call, including um, the Autodesk Sketchbook, which is something I've used before. It's a really great uh, sketch noting app, I might note. Uh, iPad Procreate, um, Clip Art or Clip Studio Paint, um, the Affinity Designer and Affinity Photo, which are also uh, companion apps to wonderful Adobe alternatives um, on the Mac operating system, and uh, uh, Linea Sketch, which is another uh, a great app. But if you're noticing that those great apps are going away, and it was uh, Illustrator Draw for me that was the one that I used uh, quite a bit because it allowed you to kind of draw signatures uh, to turn into uh, vector images, then these are alternatives to that app. Yep, and Procreate is at the top of that list, and I would put that at the top as well. It is a paid app, but I love using that for sketchnoting. One thing I'd say in terms of using this with students, because uh, last year our sixth graders all had iPads, and I was able to teach a sketchnoting unit and love that. Uh, this year we're going to have Touch Dell Chromebooks, and we are having styluses. So anyway, I need to still do a little more, little more testing this summer because I, I, I love sketchnoting. But I like a simpler sketchnoting app, especially as students are getting started. Adobe Fresco, which is a very powerful and free app, um, is just, you know, fairly complicated with just, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of brush choices and, you know, just textures and all and, and lots and lots. So uh, but hey, great, great uh, recap of some good choices. And if you're not doing sketch noting and, and offering sketch noting as an option to your students as a good way for them to process and then also show and make their thinking visible to you and their classmates and retell the key points of a lesson or video. Sketch noting is a great strategy. So have you played at all with sketch noting apps on a Chromebook, Dr. Neifer? Um, I have not. Uh, the closest I've, I've, I've gotten to that was, um, the, um, and I forgot the name of the app that we had just talked about. And I'm going to fill some time while I scroll back down to that. Oh, um, the Autodesk Sketchbook, which is a really, really great app. And I believe that there is an equivalent, um, on the Chromebook, but I have not played with it yet. Okay. Well, we have, um, you know, a Google Play Store for students and we have to get things, you know, approved and put in there. Um, and it's, you know, some, sometimes there's not a tremendous, a tremendous benefit and difference to an app version versus just a web version. Uh, but yeah, if anybody listening to the show is playing at all with sketch noting apps and Chromebooks, um, yep. that'll be something I need to, to delve Please. into. Yep. All right. How about that last app article? Should we pick that one up? Uh, yeah, in part, and I think you dropped this one in there. So why don't you give us the quick intro? Yeah. So I, uh, you know, periodically listen to the This Week in Tech Quit podcast and a week or so ago, they were talking about this right to repair. Uh, and so this is an article from today, um, July 21st. FTC unanimously adopts the right to repair policy to reduce restrictions from manufacturers like Apple. Now, to be fair, this isn't all about Apple, but Apple has been called out specifically by the FTC. Um, but like John Deere Tractors, that's actually a company that's really been, you know, lobbying heavy against this. And, you know, the idea is, look, if I buy, if I buy this pen, you know, I should be able to do what I want to with this pen. If I want to hack this pen and like use it to fix my car or something else or, or this, this breaks and, and I get a spring from somewhere else, like I should be able to do what I want because I've bought it. But with smartphones, with tractors, uh, with some other kinds of appliances, um, there are, 
you know, companies that really don't want you to be able to fix your own device. And so this article talks about how, you know, this harms consumers, it harms competition, it also just harms consumer rights. And so, um, uh, I mean, the, the last quote of, of this, well, the last paragraph of this quote, these types of restrictions can significantly raise costs for consumers, stifle innovation, close off business opportunity for independent repair shops, create unnecessary electronic waste, delay timely repairs, and undermine resiliency, FTC Chair Lisa Kahn said. So we definitely have some folks with different perspectives than those of the past four years in office in places like the FTC. Um, I really think that this pro-consumer um, position is is positive. Um, I don't think it's going to cripple, you know, Apple's innovation, um, and it's going to it's going to help consumers. I mean, we've even had that with batteries and battery replacement, right? Like there was a big snafu at one point, like because I think it, Apple was saying, well, you can't, you know, replace this battery here. <laughs> nobody nobody else can. So, our Montana farmers going to be cheering tonight, Jason, for this uh, because you know tractors are going to be you know, possibly repairable. Is this, is this seriously something you think that does impact the, the, the farming and ranching economy in the state? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, the, um, the, the way I, 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 I first learned of the right, right to repair, uh, because of, of articles regarding, um, industrial equipment and, um, you know, the, uh, don't get me wrong. Modern day farm equipment is, you know, extremely advanced. Um, um, and, you know, satellite guided and GPS, uh, uh, aimed with, you know, interesting, uh, nuances, just like the modern automobile. But there's a lot of folks that utilize, you know, 20, 30, 40 year old equipment, uh, to, um, uh, to much advantage. And, uh, the reason why they're able to do that is because they know how to fix their own stuff. It's the same to, of, 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 uh, older automobile owners and buffs that it's the same way. Um, I, it'll be interesting to me from the standpoint of, you know, right to repair doesn't, I mean, it, what it would, it would effectively do is eliminate companies from voiding warranties, for example, when you attempt to, to, uh, to repair your own equipment. But the other part of this that I think is a harder discussion is, you know, the right to repair doesn't mean that you have a right to get a piece of equipment that is repairable. And I think that's a very important distinction because, you know, the reason why, uh, uh, Apple doesn't allow you to change your battery, um, is because a long time ago they decided that user replaceable batteries would, would eliminate the visual um, uh, uh, attractiveness of devices and also make them thicker. And it's the reason why Apple's been consistently moving against user replaceable batteries. And, um, I don't see them suddenly increasing the uh, thickness of an iPhone, for example, by 20 or 30% to put something that is, is more, you know, end user serviceable, like, like a battery. But I do think that, uh, you know, eliminating the possibility of, uh, um, uh, uh, voiding the warranty with legitimate end user replaceable parts. Um, you know, I can think of a lot of laptops that, um, I've repaired over time that, uh, you know, adding RAM to them. Um, you know, Apple's moving towards a one board solution. If you open up the, the new, uh, MacBook, uh, Pro M1 or the iMac M1, there's just a single board sitting in there. There's nothing even hanging off of it because they've integrated all that into the board itself. So we're not necessarily talking about that, but it will be interesting to see, uh, you know, how Apple responds to this, especially since they've been specifically called out um, by the FTC uh, in regards to their their lack of repairability and uh, the, the steps they've taken to diminish the right to repair. 
Peggy asked in the chat, is this a copyright issue and who owns the rights? Um, we've also seen this in printers, right? With some printer yeah. companies that have forbidden you to ever use a printer replacement cartridge that's not, you know, manufactured and sold by them. Uh, so it touches on copyright and intellectual property, but I'm not a lawyer, but I think that this is more like terms of use, perhaps. And, you know, this, this idea of the right to repair, you know, they assert, um, through, you know, your purchase of it, I guess, and your agreement with, with, with their desires. I don't know exactly if that's terms of service or, or what that's called, but it's like, Hey, you've, you've bought a HP brother, whatever printer, and we're not, and, and we, and we say that, you know, you, you agree you will only use our, our, you know, stuff. And so, yeah, you'll, you'll void, void warranties and things like that. It's kind of weird, uh, but it definitely is sort of a, it's a way of controlling consumer behavior. And, and really the weird thing is like, you're like tractors, you know, that doesn't seem, yeah. but Hey, if you want to talk high tech, you know, we had a friend who worked for Monsanto when we lived in Lubbock, Texas and the level of, you know, GPS data gathering and knowing exactly what the yield was on this exact square, you know, foot of, of, um, uh, you know, of cotton farm and, and what, you know, how much fertilizer. And anyway, it's, it's incredible um, how high tech farming uh, can be. So um, companies want to obviously have return on investment and, and they want to be profitable. But at the same time, you know, it, it's uh, it can seem ridiculous when, you know, you, you say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to avoid the warranty. I mean, how, how expensive for tractors, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, and in some cases for combines and, you know, I'm speaking as if I really know a lot about farming. <laughs> they yeah, cost I, a lot of I, money. I, They're big. <laughs> and to be clear, um, that is totally, uh, that would additionally be a part of, uh, you know, my, I mean, I, I, I mean, my grandfather was, was a homesteader. He had a large farm. Um, my mom's side of the family, uh, actually owns, uh, tractor dealerships in Southern Germany. So it's, it is my heritage, but I also can speak with no expertise here either. I know a lot about Chromebooks. That's right. Well, hey, speaking of that, you've got a few Google articles, including some carryovers from last week. So do you want to pick up any of those? Um, yeah, the, the, just a couple quick ones. Um, this one I've already noticed. This is from 9to5Google on June 26th, which is, and we might have mentioned this one last week, but it's still worth saying because I've now had an opportunity to use it. Uh, Chrome is getting a more functional Zoom app. And if you go to install in the Play Store, because they are moving away from, you know, the Chrome Store as it, as it plays out, um, uh, then the, um, um, uh, it's now installing a progressive web app that's a more advanced app than it was before. And in fact, one of the reasons why that I have tended to use uh, Chrome OS less than the last two years is only because that I spent so much time on video conferencing. And although Google Meets is great um, on Chrome OS, uh, Zoom is less functional. The Mac and PC apps are, are way more functional. And um, Zoom is moving towards a progressive web app that has more function available to the end user. So great news for Chrome OS users, especially those of you that sit a lot on Zoom meetings. We might have picked up this article too, and I just moved it, you know, up. But there's a in two days on July 23rd, there's a YouTube deadline for unlisted videos. Uh, if you upload, if you if you made any videos you uploaded before 2017 private, unless you fill out a form as a YouTube user on Friday, all of those unlisted videos are going to become private. You could still change them to unlisted, but you have to fill out a form to do that. So maybe we talked about that, but the deadline is, is in two days and Friday. 
So if you are, if you have a YouTube channel, if you have any videos that are unlisted and you had content there before 2017, that is an article actually from nine to five Google on June 23rd to pay attention to uh, and fill out that form. Okay, great. Um, let's see. Um, oh, um, an interesting article from uh, 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 Kevin Tolfold's blog on Chromebooks. Here's why I can't uh, pick the best Chromebook. Um, and he's talking about, you know, uh, uh, why Chromebooks are a little complicated in, in, in picking them. And I only uh, wanted to mention this article in part because I do think standards are changing a little bit uh, in regards to my, my old advice would have been, um, well, it still is, you really do need a Chromebook with 8 gigabytes of RAM. Um, uh, 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 to be able, I think, to future-proof the Chromebook. If you want to use it more than three or four years, I think age's got to be a minimum. I would also say that there's a lot of evidence that some of this, the the more budget-friendly chips um, uh, 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 are starting to become fast enough to where they could run a Chromebook with with multitasking, like multiple tabs, maybe even many multimedia tabs and back, um, to be able to... Uh, uh, um, uh, still be a, a, a power user's machine. And, you know, there is, uh, there's a lot of people that try to claim, you know, what is the greatest Chromebook or what, what Chromebook should you buy right now? But I think uh, Mr. Tofel does a really great job of making the argument that it's really a, you know, a, what do you want to do with it kind of question more than anything else. And mentioned in that article, and it's actually a response to this, uh, this week in Google, which I, also listen to some more infrequently than, than twit or security now. Uh, but Jeff Jarvis uh, was actually talking about this. He's kind of responding. And the great analogy here is if you're walking into a car dealership and you just say, what's the best car, you know, it all depends. It depends on your budget. It depends upon your preferences. It depends on your priorities. Um, you know, it, it, it might be easy to steer you to the most expensive car on the lot, but that's not going to be the best choice for everyone. So, about Chromebooks is a fantastic website, and Kevin Tofel is a fantastic tech journalist who is always staying on top of Chrome World as well as many other things. Yep. So absolutely, definitely, definitely a good person. I dropped the link into that uh, YouTube um, opt-out form uh, that we mentioned Great. earlier. So yeah, it's uh, if you don't want your your unlisted content to go to private automatically, fill that out ASAP. Great. All right. Okay. How about how about uh let's talk about this freedom phone. Can we do that? Can we yeah, talk culture war? It's gonna risk, you know, talking a little politics here, but we're focusing uh, on technology, folks. So I spent some time there today, actually. Um the article intrigued me. So first Wes, why don't you talk about what is the freedom phone? Well, the headline here from Ars Technica yesterday on July twentieth is the MAGA targeted freedom phone has a breathtaking amount of red flags. Uh subtitle Analysis, no specs listed, uncensored app store, looks like Google Play. So as we've talked about on the show, and most of us are aware, there's a lot of hoopla, proposed legislation, you know, conversation, angry people um, over, you know, tech censorship, the, uh, the alleged and real, you know, censorship of people from tech platforms like Twitter, like Facebook and YouTube, and there are folks that are primarily, in this case, conservative and, and right wing who have wanted to create their own platforms. Uh, we've talked on the show before about Parler, uh, which was supposed to be and I think it's been 
I think it's still been reborn, you know, with the, the CEO gone and, and things have changed. Um, but anyway, there is a market, you know, for folks that, that don't want to be censored. And so the guy who has started this company, uh, for the Freedom Phone, uh, this is being, um, promoted as a $500 smartphone. Apparently, uh, and the guy is named Eric Finman. Uh, he's the self-described world's youngest Bitcoin millionaire, and it's going to ship in August. And it, you know, is supposed to like have no censorship. So you're going to be able, you know, even if Google removes something from that, from the app store, you're still going to be able to get it. But, uh, evidently there's a Chinese tech company called Umadigi that has manufactured it. And so they think it's a, a rebranded Umadigi A9 Pro. It's about a $120 phone. Um, but what they go into some detail in the, in the article is that it's actually pretty difficult to run your own app store and, you know, be able to, you know, keep, keep apps if they're, if they're going to be discontinued. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenge. It's more than, than just selling hardware. So, Anyway, there's not a lot of specs for this, and they're saying there's a lot of security flags, but, you know, are, maybe maybe some people are going to shell out $500 for it. One of the things I thought was most interesting in the article was that they listed, in addition to Parler, quote, other right-wing apps. And so Newsmax, O-A-N-N, uh, as news platforms um, that some people, and, and I think President Trump had actually pushed people to uh, you know, abandon Fox and go to these. And, and then this app called Rumble, uh, which is a video platform that's actually uh, Canadian-based. But one of the things that they're saying in this article is, we'll never censor, and you're going to have to. Like, there is illegal content, um, you know, that that is going to is going to have to be dealt with. And, and this idea that we could have absolute unfettered free speech, let people share and do whatever they want, um, just doesn't work in a nation of laws. So interesting. What did you find curious about the article, Jason? Well, um, uh, there's obviously a lot going on here. The part that, that the nerd in me um, immediately latched onto the fact that this is an Android phone that's being divorced of Google services, but then they're trying to build up something on top of it, right? And I did also find interesting in the article, there's a couple things. Ron Armadio is, is, is the author of the article. He's a longtime uh, uh, Android journalist. And um, there's a couple things I found interesting. The first one was that I went to the website and looked at the Freedom Phone, and uh, Ron had noted in the article that they were allowing you to stack coupons, and so you could effectively get the phone down to $0 plus $20 shipping. I, I was able to do that. I decided I didn't really want to give my credit card number over to do that. Um, but I did almost uh, consider doing that. It's $500 for the phone, but you can stack all these coupons and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, and it looks like they might even guessed some coupons. Uh, MAGA, for example, got, uh, a $50 off, uh, Trump 2024, um, uh, Parler, uh, also picked off that. But then also they are installing an open source, um, a store that, you know, they control that has a access to apps that are open source apps. Um, uh, but also that they, I would imagine are also giving or, or allowing you to install apps from these, you know, selected third parties that they believe either aren't available on other platforms or are, are heavily restricted. So from that standpoint, it's interesting. 
the other thing that also could be a possibility here is that rather than getting mixed up in the political intrigue of this, um, they are selling the phone for $500. And from the guess of, 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 of the journalist in this article, this was a phone that retailed for $160. And so the hardware itself may actually be radically overpriced and it could really just be a play to, um, to bilk uh, 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 people of a certain political persuasion um, into believing that they're getting this, you know, this real freedom phone, which they're paying a huge price for. The other thing you don't know is that um, uh, you have no idea what else is is, is tracking uh, you on these phones. You have no other idea what pieces of these are. Uh, and so I think that's an important piece here to be very cognizant of that. You're not just um, uh, you're not just uh, um um, you're not just buying a phone, but since it isn't under one of the major marketplaces, you are, would be, you know, absolutely, uh, vulnerable to whoever is pushing code and updates to that phone. Absolutely. Yeah. And just kind of like jail, jailbreaking your device or, yeah. um, you know, uh, what is it, what's it called when you do that to the Android? It's not called jailbreaking, but, um, you turn 50, you, you forget words. So anyway, there's a word that means, yeah. uh, you know, being Rooting. able to. Rooting, thank you. Being able yep. to root your Android phone. The other thing this reminded me of, and it wasn't mentioned in the article, but it's China, right? Because Google, from my understanding, has officially pulled support for Android from the Chinese marketplace. Is that right? And so China is now trying to create their own, essentially, uh, fork of Android, which is yep. open source, but, you know, figure out how they're going to do their own store and, and how all that is going to work. So that's that's an interesting thread that we've, you know, talked about and mentioned. And and this raises the issue as well. So yeah. there were two other articles that I dropped under that category of culture war, which could have been under other things, too. Uh, this is a PolitiFact article from June 25th. New Florida law doesn't require university students, faculty uh, and staff at public universities and colleges to register their political views with the state. Uh, now, PolitiFact is run by the Pointer Institute, which is a nonprofit that does a lot around media literacy. And, you know, this this points to how important it is to fact check things. I had had a friend actually, you know, share that headline with me in, in person, uh, but, you know, pretty upset. Thing, and I was like, man, that sounds like Nazi Germany. You know, professors are having to, are to register. But <clears throat> the law is, is somewhat ambiguously phrased. There is going to have to be surveys done, but it's not like every single, you know, faculty member at a, at a higher, a higher ed institution in Florida is going to have to say, you know, Hey, I'm a, I'm a Republican or, or I'm a Democrat, but certainly it's a, it's, it's, it's a culture war, you know, phenomenon. Um, and, uh, you know, fact checking is the reason why I put this in here as far as media literacy, right? Because any time something is, is pushing an emotional button with us. And this one kind of did with me. I was like, Oh my God, you know, one of the first things we need to do is, is to fact check it. And then the last article I put in was a Washington post article from July 20th um, that had to do with the suspension of conservative voices. The headline is Twitter suspends representative Marjorie Taylor Greene for spreading COVID-19 misinformation. Now it was just a short term, short term um, lock on her account. They said that some earlier locks that were automated and, and happened quickly um, had been accidental, um, but they Twitter as well as some other social media companies are using a, a graduated 
approach to try and not just, you know, ban somebody and say, you're off the platform forever. Uh, but to, you know, like, like you do with, with a lot of consequences with, with children or students, you know, you, you have a warning, uh, you know, and then it can get a little more serious. Um, so actually, I'll just I'll, I'm gonna I'll flow into the, these next two, and then I'm gonna hand it to you because you you put this EFF article in Gizmodo May 31st, and this one was sh- shared by Alec Kuros. So this is a little bit older, but this has said that Twitter may start labeling your tweets based on how wrong you are, and um, you know machine learning algorithms. We have had a lot of talk in tech companies about how, oh, how these are going to, you know, really assist in the moderation of, of horrific content and bad content. Um, but, you know, they're trying, they're trying now to identify, did, did you say something, you know, accurate or false about the COVID vaccines or, or some other kind of topic? And of course, we're having, you know, errors happen here, but they're trying. And so anyway, I thought that was a, a pretty interesting development. And then this last one, which I'll then toss back to you, was excellent. I read this article before the show that you put in. EFF, July 16th, right or left, you should be worried about big tech censorship. Do you want to give us a little summary of that and any of your thoughts there? Yeah, it, it's a it's an interesting article. And it's, it's one of those that I would say that it's worth your time to go... Uh, read it because of the the detailed arguments they give about uh, the the problem with censorship. And to be to be clear, Wes and I have been talking about for literally years uh, uh, on the podcast that we have to find a way to work together to regulate these. But censorship as a broad concept isn't going to fix anything. And in fact, it makes it complicated to uh, even use the word censorship when it when in regards to private platforms like Facebook, YouTube, etc. But Cory Doctorow, who is a longtime expert um, in this arena, um, um, uh, for, for lack of a better way of, of putting it, um, talks about why... Uh, it's it's problematic for us uh, to have censorship um, on 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 various networks um, across the, the huge silos. And in fact, um, when he talks about things like um, uh, the problem with having big tech um, uh, control this, as opposed to having smaller uh, individuals involved, um, and the network effects of what happens um, when you uh, uh, start to introduce censorship-like processes in these various platforms, um, and then more importantly, uh, the fact that you don't want to concentrate power in large tech silos with huge tech companies, um, um, I think that's a, a, a something very important to, to think about and, and to, um, uh, I think, uh, you know, guide your thinking and discussion about how to do things. And one of the really important things he mentions in this article, which I have heard talk about, but not the specific act, is the Access Act. And the idea of interoperability and not where I could just, you know, grab my data and just have it in like downloaded files, but like I'd act like email, email is interoperable today. So if I'm mad at Google and I want to get rid of Gmail, you know, I, I can do that. What's even a better example, and he uses this in the article, is our cell phone number, right? Because we're able to port our number to different carriers. So unless 
you know, you're sending me a text message via email or whatever, like you have no idea looking at my number, whether I'm with T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T or somebody else. And we have some interoperability because of the standards that exist. But tech companies have, you know, not wanted that level of interoperability. And so the Access Act is something that, you know, and, and Corey is pointing out, there's some really important things that we can do as far as advocacy. And I really, really like that recommendation to say, hey, you know, contact your your elected representatives uh, and senators and let them know that you support this idea of an access act. Because one of the statistics in this is that Twitter is a tenth of the size of Facebook. I mean, Facebook is gargantuan. And that's that idea of network effects. And there's so many people. And he talks about, uh, in addition to network effects, I think it's called like what? the uh, missing out. Um, I don't know. There's another, there's another thing that we need to worry about. And that is that, you know, people aren't just going to join switching costs is what he calls it. And so there's costs of switching, but yeah, it is an excellent article, a great overview of a lot of the issues that we've been talking about, as Jason said, for years with the tech correction. Um, and hopefully, you know, this is going to move forward in some, in some reasoned ways, because as he points out, we have consensus among you know, folks across the political spectrum that something needs to be done. We need to stop this. But I haven't really heard many headlines about the Access Act. Uh, you know, this is my first article to read about it. And so maybe we can play roles in helping educate our elected representatives about this, because that idea of interoperability and, you know, whether whether we should have, you know, social platforms that you know, and, uh, enable us to more easily move uh, back and forth. Anyway, I don't think we're going to be getting there quickly. And Facebook is not going to give up its power <laughs> at all easily. But no. as as he also points out in there, if reforming Section 230 uh, w- was a solution that would really help, then why would Facebook be advocating for it themselves? And anyway, it's... Um, Lots of different issues that are here, and we all need to become both better educated about it, but I think also aware of of paths of advocacy because we don't just have to wring our wring our our uh, hands or whatever and and just you know uh, complain to each other about this. There's there are some some good proposals and some some good discussions to have, and perhaps your elected officials. I mean, if there are things that Jason and I haven't heard of before, you know, there's a good chance there, there may be some elected officials that don't consider themselves techniques <laughs> that they may not have heard of either. So the access act was definitely one of the things I was yeah. like, oh, okay, cool. Glad to know about that. Right. And also uh, a good de- definite or a good uh, um, 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 defense of se- section 232, which I think was also something that, um, uh, was important in the article and talking about why getting rid of it is not going to fix things like a lot of folks advocate uh, for. Yep, definitely. All right. Well, we're approaching the top of the hour. We have time for a few more articles. Um, anything else you want to you want to pick up? We did a pretty good job actually tonight. Yeah, yeah, we got through most of the stuff tonight. Um, How about the vaccination one? Uh, did you see that one about yeah. Indiana? Okay, this is New York Times from yesterday, July 20th. A federal judge upholds Indiana University's vaccination requirement for students. Um, and I don't know. I, I have a, I have several things here under the COVID headline, which is going to be kind of like, you know, how do we get to technology, you know, through this? There's certainly a social social media aspect. But we've, we're definitely, you know, educators and, and we're going back to school. And this was a pretty significant 
we've talked about free speech and what the limits of, of that are vis-a-vis technology. And so, um, you know, a group has been arguing that, you know, forcing college students to have to get the vaccine is a violation of their autonomy and their rights. And, you know, prominent anti-vax groups and lawyers have, have been leading that charge. And so this is evidently a precedent setting sort of first time decision for a higher court to rule that, yes, indeed, Indiana University can require that. Um, so, again, I think there's probably a tenuous connection here to to tech news. It is certainly related to the moment in which we are living in education and the questions that I think a lot of us are having about what are we, you know, how are we going back to school? Are we going to have these restrictions again? You know, are we all going to be online again? You know, I don't think yeah. we are. I think we're going to be more, fa- I think face to face is going to, is going to come roaring back this year. But I thought that was a pretty, I, that, that one definitely caught my attention uh, yesterday. Great. All right. Geek of the week, sir. Sure. Um, I just found an article delightful and I want to mention it because I think it's, it's worthy of your read. Uh, it's from the Smithsonian Magazine, uh, tomorrow, actually. So one of those magazine articles where it appeared online before the, the print publication was officially released, but it is basically a history of the Oregon Trail and the Minnesota Education Computing Consortium, which is so much a part of my personal background in, in getting into computers. And I'm not sure how much I've talked about it on the show, but um, I was I, I, shocking to our listeners that I was a nerdy little elementary school kid in the 1980s and starting with a particularly um, astute teacher, uh, Mrs. Platicia, my fifth grade teacher, I started getting really into computers and, uh, it helped that she had an Apple IIe in her classroom. And, uh, so much so that, uh, I actually, the, we ended up getting a, a school full of Apple IIe's and the principal put me in charge of setting them up in, in all of the classrooms. Here's little fifth grade Jason running around. And of course I took this as an opportunity to really just stretch that out as long as I possibly could. Had to test the audio in, in, in the new, uh, uh, a new computers, et cetera. But, um, for those that, that weren't around then or, or weren't into computers quite yet, uh, so many wonderful educational programs came from the, that Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium. And it does give kind of a bit of an oral history of, uh, the, the Oregon Trail, the folks that created it and, uh, other games of that era. But if you remember the Bank Street Writer and the early print shop, uh, uh, software and the Minnesota Education Computing Consortium, Oregon Trail and Number Munchers and all those great games. This article is amazing and it will delight you. And if you haven't heard of any of this stuff, I think it's worth knowing the history. So that, yeah, that just takes me back because 1995, uh, when I was, you know, doing my student teaching, we had the Apple IIe lab at Wheelock Elementary in Lubbock, Texas. Teachers had just gotten Apple uh, Mac 580s, which didn't have CD drives uh, or at the time were not connected to, to the Internet. What was that? Um, and so we were just doing accelerated reader. But, yes, going to the lab and having Mac, MECC programs, you know, Oregon Trail, um, there was a lot of, of value to doing that. And honestly, there's a number of teachers that still have thought of, and even yeah. with iPads, that's what kids do. You go and plug them into these apps and there's, there can be value there and there can there's. be joy and, 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 and wonder. 
Uh, but, but, uh, yes, there, there's more today. So I'm going to definitely check that out. That's awesome. Uh, my geek of the week is actually a Twitter moment. So Twitter moments are still, uh, there. They're just not very visible, uh, on the platform. If you put your, uh, uh, Twitter ID in and then, uh, slash moments, you know, if you have any or the user channel that you're looking at has any, you'll see them. Uh, basically, they're aggregations and collections of tweets. <clears throat> you can have up to 100 tweets together. I know that a number of people in the conference last week use Wakelet in that same way because you can just drop links and create an archive. But um, last week I was, again, in the, the uh, Summer Institute in Digital Literacy, and there were a few tweets beyond the 100 that I, that I have in there. But I think on Thursday I put that together, and it's just a – I think it's a reverse chronological list of the takeaways and links and resources that I had from the conference. So I've really enjoyed for a number of years – Instead of blogging the conference, you know, tweeting the conference. And so I, uh, I've done that for a, a number of years when I've participated in a conference is creating a Twitter moment. I've experienced too and just making a big thread. So like putting one tweet and then just replying to, to that one tweet with every other tweet, you know, to, to collect them. So they're just not all, so they have a little bit of organization. So anyway, if you're not aware of Twitter moments, they're a thing, they're still around. I thought that Twitter was going to deprecate them, uh, but it's nice to have a built-in tool like that to yes. be able to collect uh, related tweets. And they don't have to just be your own. You, you can have, you know, other tweets and things like that. So there you go. And we've taken us to one hour. So Dr. Neifer, when you're not here sharing your wisdom, with us, how can folks connect with you? Um, uh, the best place to find me is Twitter. I'm at Tech Savvy Teach, and I love connecting with folks and also sharing articles about EdTech, Chromebooks, uh, and also educational philosophy. Awesome, awesome. Uh, and before I tell you where I am uh, found, uh, Peggy had a quick question. If there are issues, tweeting resources from a conference, if it's a paid conference, I haven't ever run into that before. I mean, certainly if somebody has... I mean, copyrighted materials or things like that. I mean, I've had people get mad at me because they thought I had illegally recorded their session when I just blogged YouTube videos that they had used, you know, in their session before. Um, so, you know, if, if people that that's that's one of those things that ISTE was starting to get better about, like saying, you know, is recording allowed? Um, you know, what what kinds of sharing uh, would, would be permissible? So. Uh, generally, and I certainly am this way, but I'm an oversharer. Um, I think it's great to amplify ideas. And even when there's a, a paid presentation or something, I mean, our conference last year, last week that did had Digi URI, which is for University of Rhode Island, but, um, definitely Twitter hashtag and really encouraging people to share out, to make those connections, to amplify ideas and let more people know about the conference. So, um, I am W Fryer on Twitter and I've collected and aggregated the resources about where I'm sharing stuff, which includes a lot of backyard barbecue and cooking this summer as we're still enjoying a couple more weeks off. All of that you can find at westfriar.com slash after. So this has been the EdTech Situation Room, episode 224, if you can believe it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and it's just an opportunity for Jason and I to get together, talk about tech news, and you know, get on some soapboxes every once in a while. And hey, we didn't fall into too deep of, of a pothole with the tech correction tonight. So, you know, bonus. 
Peggy, you're a good influence. Uh, <laughs> we would encourage you to check out the show notes to tonight's show and all of our shows at edtechsr.com slash links at edtechsr.com. You can find uh, not only our shows, but also small MP3 audio versions. You can always subscribe to us on YouTube or follow us on Twitter because sometimes we're not here. And the best way to do that is usually on Twitter, but we'll also cross post that to Facebook as well. So wherever you happen to be in space and time, we're glad that you've joined in and we encourage you to stay safe, stay savvy, and we hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night, everybody.